following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, now this morning we are, and for the next three weeks, doing something a little bit different. We're doing, starting a three-week series today, and it's called That Thing You Do. What we're going to be doing is looking at some of the things that we do in these services, in these times, on Sunday morning. Because we do some things every time we gather, uh, every week. And we've been doing these things for a long time now. The church is 18 years old and we're doing this stuff every week. And some of you have been at other churches before this church. And you've been doing some of these things for a lot longer than that. And we can just end up going through the motions sometimes and become so familiar with some of these things. It's helpful to take a step back and ask, why do we do these things that we do? What are they all about? What is their purpose supposed to be? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about three of the main things that we do in these services together. Not all that we do, and I'm not saying these are necessarily the most important things that we do, but three of the primary things that we do. So we're going to talk about singing, we're going to talk about preaching, and we're going to talk about communion over the next three weeks. We're going to try and unpack these things biblically and ask what they're all about. Why do we do these things? Where do they come from? What is their purpose supposed to be? What are they supposed to achieve in our lives, in our church community? And how might we do them better? How could these things be enhanced? What is their role in our lives and in the life of our church? Sound good? You're excited. So, it could be hard work this morning, especially because we are starting by talking about singing, singing in church. Uh, I'm not going to sing, but I am going to talk about singing. And we're going to talk about what it means to sing together in church on Sundays. This is the first time ever that I've preached about singing. It's a slightly strange experience for me, but we're going to dive in. And I know some of you, you're excited about this because you love singing in church. Others of you, you're pulling out your phones, you're already on Facebook, you've switched off and you're about to walk out the door. But hang in there, okay? It's not going to be as bad as you think. We're going to have fun. We're going to dive into Scripture and we're going to talk about the role that corporate singing or communal singing plays in the life of our church. Okay, what we're going to do is uh, look in the Bible at just one verse about singing in church today. I want to focus in on one particular verse. So Colossians chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, pull out your Bible, pull out, open up your Bible app. Colossians chapter 3, this is uh, a letter, it's written again by Paul. Hamish talked last week about uh, from Philippians, one of the letters written by Paul, and this is the letter to the Colossians. Also written from prison, around about the same time as Philippians. It's a wonderful letter to read in its entirety at some stage, but we're going to focus right in this morning on just one verse in Colossians 3, 16. Here's what it says. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So, this is one of a couple of places in Paul's letters where he talks specifically about singing in church. He's talked to the Colossians about a lot of things, uh, peace and forgiveness and things to do with their church life, and here he talks specifically about singing. There's a lot in this verse. It's pretty dense, and every phrase is important. So, I want to walk with you through this verse because it gives us a picture of what singing is might have looked like in the first century church, because they sung, apparently, in those churches, in Paul's churches. 
And it builds a bit of a picture of what singing can look like and what it can be in the church today. So let's dive into this. The first thing that Paul says is, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. The message of Christ uh, literally says or means the word of Christ. That's the phrasing, the word of Christ, the message of Christ. This is talking about the teaching about Jesus, the teaching about who Jesus is, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. His returning, all of that is the message of Christ. It's what we might call the gospel. For us, it's that body of teaching that's now compiled and revealed in this book, the Bible. So this, for us, is the message of Christ. This is the word of Christ for us. And so what Paul's saying is our singing in church is predicated on the assumption that this message is dwelling among us richly. That's the assumption. So this book, this message, this word needs to be dwelling in our community richly or else our singing's meaningless. It's just going to be noise. It's just going to be words. We need to be singing, in a sense, from Scripture. That means the songs that we sing need to come from Scripture. They need to emerge from Scripture and reflect biblical truth. And they do. We have a process at Shaw when we select songs and choose songs. One of the criteria we're looking at is whether these songs reflect truth that's revealed and explained in the Bible. We talk about that. But it also means for the word of Christ to dwell among us richly, it relies on each of us individually, having the word of Christ dwelling within us and within our lives richly. It relies on us having a practice in our individual lives of intaking this book and reading this, meditating on this book. If you're not doing that, then when you come to church and you sing these songs, we worship together, that's, that's all going to be very disconnected from your everyday life if you're not in the word. If you're not forming habits of prayer in Scripture, you're going to sing and these words are going to be superficial, they're going to be hollow, they're going to be shallow because they're not reflecting the reality of your life. But if you are living a life that is soaked in Scripture, where you're walking with God and you're spending time in His Word and this is dwelling in you richly, then when you sing in church, it's going to be the overflow of a life that's coming out of Scripture and coming out of prayer. And as you sing, it's going to feed back into your life. And it's going to be connected to your everyday walk with God. So this is the first thing Paul wants to tell us, is that singing needs to emerge from a community that is committed to the authority of Scripture, where the Word of Christ is dwelling among us richly. Then he says this, that the Word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Isn't it interesting that when Paul talks about singing, he talks about these different types of songs, one of the purposes that he describes for singing is teaching and admonishing. To teach is to communicate truth, and admonishing is to correct, to correct error, to correct false teaching or false doctrine. And we don't usually think of that in connection to singing. I mean, we think about singing as the time we're sort of expressing our hearts to God and we're praising Him and we're uh, celebrating Him and all of these things. But Paul says, actually, one of the purposes of singing is that we are teaching when we sing and we are learning. We are being taught when we sing. We are being admonished when we sing. I don't know whether you realize that's happening, but it is. We are being taught scripture. We are being taught theology when we sing. We are being taught a biblical worldview through the songs that we sing on Sundays. The old hymn writers, great example of this. You think of the old hymns of the church, 16th, 17th, 18th century hymns. 
Those hymns, a huge part of their purpose was to teach theology. Think of someone like Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley and John Wesley, the fathers of the Methodist movement, had a huge ministry, in, particularly in Great Britain. And John Wesley spoke to hundreds, thousands of people, open-air fields. It was part of the Great Awakening that led to hundreds of people coming to Christ. And, and John Wesley would preach these, these great revival meetings. And his brother Charles wrote all these songs, which we now call hymns, songs. He wrote over 6,000 of them. Some of the best-known hymns in the church that have continued to be sung for centuries, written by Charles Wesley, including many of the Christmas carols that we sing. And so John Wesley would preach to these great crowds, and he would teach people through his preaching, but Charles Wesley would teach people through his hymns. He would teach people. That was part of the purpose of these hymns, was to teach theology to the layperson, was to teach Scripture to people. And so people would learn these songs, they would come and learn these hymns, and then they would carry them back into all these villages all around Great Britain. They would teach one another, and they were memorable ways of communicating biblical truth. And arguably, they reached even more people than John's sermons. We still sing some of those songs. You think of the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley. Let me just read you a verse of this. Think about the teaching, the theology that you're receiving through this song. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. It's a beautiful image of Jesus, beautiful image of the resurrection, risen with healing in His wings. So through these songs, people are learning about the incarnation. They're learning about the atonement. They're learning about the resurrection. They're learning about the returning of Christ, and all through songs. And you might think that doesn't happen anymore. That's just something that happened when people wrote those old hymns. But it happens today more than you think it happens. Because any time we're listening to music, any time we're listening to any sort of singing, doesn't matter whether it's Christian songs or non-Christian so-called secular songs, music has a power to it. Songs have a power to it that we don't often appreciate. And if you, you can be listening to a bit of Justin Bieber in your car. You can be doing a bit of carpool karaoke. I've seen some of you on the way out in the car park, a little bit of carpool karaoke going on. You're learning something. You're receiving something from the songs that we listen to. We are always internalizing something at a level that probably most of us are not even conscious of. We're being shaped and we are being formed through the music and the songs that we listen to. It's one of the ways that we are shaped. It's one of the ways that we are being shaped by our culture. So you've got to ask the question. I'm not saying it's wrong to listen to secular music or non-Christian music, but we've got to recognize the formative effect that music has on us as we listen to it, whatever kind of music that is. So think about the songs that you listen to. What values are they communicating to you? What are you internalizing? So often we're listening to songs that are communicating to us values around individualism, around selfishness, around greed, around lust, around thirst for money and a quest for power and consumerism, and, and these values that are incompatible with a biblical worldview, and this is what we are internalizing. So we come to church on Sunday, and we sing some songs that are shaping us in a different way. And when we sing these songs together, we're acknowledging that all week, for the last six days, we have been squeezed into the mold of our culture. For the last six days, the world's been squeezing us into its mold in all types of ways, including through the songs that we are listening to. 
And we come and we sing these songs that tell a different story. Songs that speak, in a sense, a different language. That speak of a different reality and center our hearts and minds again around the biblical story. And we are saying no to the way that our world and our culture continues to press us into its mold. And we are recalibrating our lives around the story of redemption, the story of God reconciling the world to himself through Christ. That's what's happening. We're anchoring ourselves in a different story. And songs have a way of doing that that preaching can't. We want to value preaching. We'll talk about that next week. But songs have a power to them that preaching doesn't have. Music, it's a God-given gift. It has a power. It gets into our bones in a way that just talking does not. And that's one of the things that's going on when we sing. It's one of the reasons why we sing, because we are being taught. We are being admonished. It's happening all the time. And it happens on Sundays so that we're rooted again in the story of Scripture and we go out with that story burning in our hearts so that we can withstand again the onslaught of the world that's coming over the next six days. This is why we sing. Teaching and admonishing one another. So then Paul says, we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. This is a little insight into the way that churches in the first century went about singing. And Paul gives us this threefold division of songs. Probably these are not completely separate categories of songs. There's probably a lot of overlap between these, but nevertheless, they give us some focus areas of the different types of singing that churches did and churches can do. So let's just look at these briefly. The first one he mentions is Psalms. That's probably the easiest. It just refers to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, and, and assorted other psalms throughout the Old Testament. Book of Psalms is a wonderful book. It's so worth spending time in within your own devotional life. I start most days with a psalm. Uh, it's, it gives me words to speak to God that I don't have within myself. The psalms are such a powerful book, and they're not just individual songs. This was the song book of Israel. The psalms are the songs of a nation, Songs that express the praise of Israel as God's people to Yahweh. And we've got to realize these songs were used in all kinds of ways. Israel sung all the time. They sung at their festivals. They sung at their feast days. They sung on the way to the temple. They sung on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They just sung all the time. They sung the Psalms. They wrote more Psalms to sing. Judaism has bequeathed to the church a powerful legacy of singing. And we owe them a debt of gratitude for that. They sung. They wouldn't have all been good singers. Some of them would have been hopeless singers. But they sung because they loved the Lord. And these are the songs of Jesus, the book of Psalms. That's the songbook he had. It's the songbook he grew up with. He would have memorized many of the Psalms. He would have known them. He would have sung them in the synagogue. They were his songs. And you find even Jesus on the cross, one of the last words he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he doing there? He's quoting the lyrics of a song. He's quoting a psalm, Psalm 22, that gives him the words to say to the Father when he has no words of his own. My God, my God. It's, it, it's from the Bible. It's from the Psalms. And Jesus is drawing on the rich tradition of Israel's worship and song as he speaks his final words to the Father. And those psalms then found their way into the church 
and became part of the church's singing in the first century. And we continue to sing songs today that are based on the words of the Psalms. One of the first things you notice when you read the book of Psalms is just how diverse they are. So many different types of Psalms. They reflect a whole range of human emotions and human experiences. There's such a diversity. There's Thanksgiving Psalms. There's praise Psalms. There's confession Psalms. There are royal Psalms about the king. There are wisdom songs about the virtues of wisdom. And the biggest genre of Psalms are lament Psalms. Psalms of lament. These are suffering Psalms. Songs that arise out of brokenness, songs that arise out of trouble. When the psalmist is going through very difficult times and he's crying out to God for help and he's praying for God to intervene and to to sort things out and yet he's expressing this unwavering trust and dependence on God. Lament psalms. There's a huge number of them in the book of Psalms. And this is one of the reasons, but you know how people sometimes say today that criticism of modern songs, people say, oh, there's so much I and me in these songs. These songs we sing, there's so much about me and we don't sing enough songs about God. Listen, read the Psalms. Every second Psalm, it's about I and me and my problems and, my, and I'm crying out to God. The Psalms are okay with doing that. Why can't we be? The Psalms are crying out from a place of human struggle and suffering. They're not all doing that, but many of them are. And it's okay to speak to God and sing to God from that space. In fact, if you consider how prevalent the lament psalms are in the book of Psalms, and then you think about the songs of the church today, there's quite a discrepancy. Michael Gungor, who's a Christian musician, says this. He tweeted this recently. Approximately 70% of the psalms are laments. Approximately 0% of the top 150 CCLI songs are laments, songs sung in churches. CCLI is the church copyright licensing organization. I think he's probably overstating the point a little bit. I had a look at the top 100 CCLI songs, and there are definitely some lament-type songs there. But his point is an important one, that there's a disconnection between the prevalence of lament psalms and the types of songs that modern churches tend to sing. We tend to feel like we always have to be happy. We tend to feel like our songs always have to be summary. And I'm not just talking about us as a church, but I think the contemporary church in general. We always just sort of feel like we have to put on the happy face when we sing. And yet clearly Israel didn't feel like that because they sung out of the depths, as Psalm 130 says. Out of the depths I cry to you, O God. And we've got to be comfortable singing out of the depths sometimes. Singing out of pain, singing out of brokenness. We have some songs that do that. Since 9-11, there have been a lot more worship songs written in the genre of lament. Songs like Blessed Be Your Name by Matt Redman. Songs like Desert Song by Brooke Fraser. Songs like Lord, I Need You that speak out of that place of hurt and brokenness and express the chaos and the confusion and the turbulence of life and cry out from that place. That's good. That should be part of our singing. I'm not saying every song should be like that. But we can feel free to lament as well as praise, as well as adore, as well as confess, as well as thanks. And that's all part of our singing and worship because it's all right there in the Psalms. So the Psalms are an important resource for our singing life together as a church. But that's not all. Then Paul says, Psalms and then hymns. Now some of you are getting excited by the word hymns, because you're thinking, fantastic, we're bringing back, let's go back to the 16th century, let's head back to the 18th century, let's sing Amazing Grace and all of those songs. But let's remember, Paul did not live in the 16th century. I hate to break it to you. Paul had not heard of Charles Wesley. He had not heard of John Newton. He had not heard of the song Amazing Grace, although he had certainly heard of Amazing Grace. 
Arguably, that was the impetus for the uh, song. Of course it was. But Paul didn't know the hymns as we call them today. So he's not describing those hymns. He's doing something else. And most people think that when Paul talks about hymns, he's talking specifically about songs that were about Jesus. Because when you think about it, as the church got going, they were drawing on the Psalms, but the Psalms were not explicitly about Jesus. Even the Messianic Psalms, they don't mention Jesus by name, but the church wanted to worship Jesus. They, were, they existed because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They wanted to praise Christ. And so the songwriters in the church, and yes, there were songwriters in the church in the first century, began writing songs about Christ. Songs about Jesus that reflected on his life, his death, his resurrection, and his returning. And they became part of the church's worshipping life too. And we continue to sing songs about Jesus today. Probably the majority of songs that we sing at Shaw are about Jesus in one way or another. Some part of his life, some part of his person, some part of his work. We sing songs to Christ and we sing songs about Christ. That's a vital part of our worshipping life. And then the final category that Paul mentions is songs from the Spirit. Now, this is a little bit elusive as to what Paul's meaning here because it could be translated in various ways. It could be translated songs from the Spirit. It could be translated songs of the Spirit. It could be translated spiritual songs. It's not entirely clear what Paul's meaning. Some people believe that maybe he's talking about spontaneous songs that people might sing, spontaneous spirit-led singing, maybe. It's also possible that he's talking about songs that focus on the Holy Spirit. That may be part of it. And that would make sense because when you look at this threefold division of songs that Paul talks about, it's got a beautiful Trinitarian shape to it. The Psalms were sung to God the Father. He's the one who's revealed as Yahweh in the Old Testament. Hymns were hymns and songs about and to Jesus. And then songs from the Spirit may well have been songs that focused on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So from its earliest days, the church worshipped the Trinity. And that's important when we sing to remember that. That we don't just sing to God. Who is God? That can be a vague and general, and it's fine to talk about God, and the Bible talks about God, but when we talk about the Christian God revealed in the Bible, we are talking about Father, Son, and Spirit, aren't we? That's the definition of God. That distinguishes God from every other so-called God. And so our singing should reflect that. And part of that means we can sing about the Holy Spirit. People get nervous about the Holy Spirit, nervous about singing to the Spirit, feel like there's going to be weird stuff that starts happening. But it's okay to sing to the Spirit. We sing to the Father. We sing to the Son. We pray to the Father. We pray to the Son. Why should we not speak to the Spirit? Why should we not sing to the Spirit? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not an it. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's not a commodity. He's not a substance. He is a person, a personal being. He's not a he, necessarily, by the way. We, just, we use the masculine pronoun because there's no non-gendered personal pronoun in the English language to use. Maybe we could say she. That's a whole other controversy. Let's not even go there. But either way, the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity. We should address Him as such, and that means we can sing to and about the Holy Spirit, and we can be mindful of His presence among us as we sing and as we worship. So when you step back from this, our singing should follow this beautifully Trinitarian theme. And this might be helpful for you as you sing, and our different songs reflect this, but as you're singing, think about the Father. 
the source of creation, the author of life, the one from whom all blessings flow. Think about singing and praying and worshipping the Son, Jesus. We sing to our Redeemer. We sung about my Redeemer lives this morning. We're singing about Jesus, Lord of all, our Saviour. And then we can sing about the Spirit. We can talk and sing about the Holy Spirit, the one whom indwells our hearts, who empowers us, who mediates Christ's love to us and empowers us for living the Christian life. And thinking about and singing to the different persons of the Trinity within the one being of God may add depth and richness and texture to your worship, our singing. And then finally, Paul rounds this verse off by saying, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And this is really the other side of the coin from when he talked about teaching and admonishing one another. There he was talking about the way that we receive and the way our minds are fed through singing. But here he's talking about our hearts, our hearts being captured with gratitude and responding to God. And what he's saying is that singing and worship as we gather together, it should engage both our head and our heart, right? It should. Singing should be both cognitive and affective. It should be both cerebral and visceral. It should be both head and heart. We should sing with our mind and we should sing with our emotions. Emotions are okay, right? Even in singing, again, we get scared, we get worried. We sort of, oh, we talk about, emo we don't want to be emotional in singing. Things are going to get out of control. We're going to be swinging from the chandeliers. Crazy stuff's going to happen. But when we worry about that stuff, what we're really worrying about is not emotions. We're worried about emotionalism. That's a different thing. That's when we are utterly driven by our emotions and we leave our brains at the door. But while we are right to be wary of emotionalism, that doesn't mean that emotions are bad. God gave you your emotions. God gave you the gift of singing and music. Even those of you that don't really like singing, you know that music makes you feel stuff, doesn't it? You listen to music, you listen to good music, it makes you feel something. That's a God-given gift. That's part of the beauty of this world. God has given us the gift of music. It makes us feel, and it's okay to feel in worship. It's okay to feel in singing, and we respond to God out of that. That doesn't mean if you're not feeling something, it's an excuse just to check out. But it means part of our singing is that our hearts are captured by the grace of God, and we respond in gratitude. So the question there really is simply, as you sing these songs on Sunday morning, are you singing with gratitude in your heart? to God? Simple question, but it's not that easy to answer for some of us. Are you genuinely singing with gratitude and thankfulness in your heart? Or are you just going through the motions? Or are you just staring zombie-like at the screen? Or are you singing with real and sincere gratitude in your heart for all that God has done, is doing, and is yet to do? When I think about that phrase, Singing with gratitude in our hearts, I think of the very first song in the Bible. Anyone know where that is? Exodus 15. The Israelites just come through the Red Sea. They're standing on the far side of the Red Sea. God's just closed the waters again, destroyed Pharaoh's army. And for the first time in their lives, the Israelites are free. They're a free people, no longer under the yoke of slavery. They are God's free people. And what's the first thing they do? It's not to write a statement of faith. It's not to have a church committee meeting. It is to sing. Come on. What's the first thing they do? 
sing. They sing. Exodus 15 is a song. It's a psalm. Miriam pulls out her tambourine. It's the, first, the biblical basis for having drums in church right there, a bit of percussion. She pulls out the tambourine, and away they go, and they're singing. The men sing, and the women sing, and they are praising God through song. God is my strength and my song, is what they sing. And from that moment, Israel keeps on singing. They sing with gratitude in their heart. And sometimes, yes, they lament, and sometimes they confess, but they carry on singing, and the church has picked up that legacy, and it's carried on singing down through the centuries. That's why even in the 18th century, African-American slaves in the American South could sing songs like, Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Why? Those words are beautifully captured in Martin Luther King's Memorial Day speech, I Have a Dream, because he knew that they sung because their true freedom came from God. They weren't physically free, but they were spiritually free, and they sung about it. That's what free people do. We sing the songs of freedom. We sing the songs of Zion. We sing the songs of the redeemed. And one day, we're going to get to the new creation, and guess what we're going to do? We're going to sing, like it or not. We're going to sing, and we're going to love it. We're going to sing till we like it. <laughs> Revelation 15 describes this beautiful picture. It's picking up on that Exodus 15 language. The redeemed stand on the shore of the sea. They look back. The sea is as calm as glass just like the Israelites, and they're given harps by God. I don't know whether they're going to be figurative harps or not. Let's not get into that. But we're given harps, and we're going to sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And we will join with all those from every tribe and tongue and nation who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, and we will sing free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. That's why we sing, people. That's what I want you to understand. When you're sitting here or when you're standing here on Sunday mornings, and I know some Sundays you come in and you're not feeling it. I know some of you can't be bothered. I know some of you stand there fiddling with your bulletins and looking at the screen and it's just not happening for you and you don't like singing and you just can't really get into it. But just let's understand what is happening here when we sing. We are like the Israelites, standing on the far shore of the Red Sea, they looked back at what God had done in parting the sea. We look back at the cross, an even greater miracle of salvation, and we marvel at the wonder of what Christ has done for us in bringing us to freedom. He's brought us this far by His grace. He's led us by fire and by cloud, as the old song says, to bring us to Zion, to look on His face. Blessed be God. That's why we sing. We sing looking back at what Christ has done. We sing because of all that God is doing in our lives and our church today. And we sing with anticipation of the day when we will join with all creation, when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So may we sing with glad and sincere hearts. May we sing with gratitude in our hearts. May we sing psalms. May we sing hymns to Jesus. May we sing songs of the Spirit. May we sing to Father and Son and Spirit. And may we do it all for the glory of Christ and His kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the gift of singing and music. 
And Lord, I know even here in this room, just being honest, there's some that enjoy singing and there's some that don't. And Lord, that's just kind of the way that you've made us. But we, we look to your word, Father, and we see the gift that you've given your people through Scripture, the gift of song. And your word tells us, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let, ex- let us extol him with music and song. And so, Lord, as part of our worship, we thank you that we get to sing. And I just pray, Lord, Sunday by Sunday, as we sing these songs, that you would put a fresh song in our hearts, even songs that we've sung many times, that the words would come alive, that they would resonate with us, Lord. And we pray on those days when we are just feeling tired and disengaged, distracted and disconnected, that you would capture our hearts with the reality of what you have done for us and that we would turn our minds and our hearts to you and sing with gratitude in our hearts. We give you praise in Jesus' name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.